All right, let's uh, move into our time of study together. We are going to continue, of course, in John's first epistle. Um, we've come as far as chapter four, um, so that's where we're going to pick up now. So if you've got your Bibles open to chapter four, let me just remind you, if I can, of John's reasons for writing. Now, he gives us five specific reasons that he actually says in the text himself, and, you know, I have written because, and gives us the, these reasons. So first of all, it's that we also might have fellowship. Okay, and it's, it's the fellowship that we have with each other, and most importantly, that fellowship that we have with God, that we're united in God. So that, that's the first thing that John says. That's in chapter 1, verse 3. But he also writes that our joy might be full. Now, how many Christians are going about their Christian life without that fullness of joy? John writes because he says there is a way of living your life as a Christian that your joy can be overflowing. Now, that's in the midst of challenges and temptations and the trials that we experience. But John says we can know that joy. Uh, and that's we've already looked at that to, to a degree already in chapter one, verse four is where John says that. Um, but it really, again, is that abiding in Jesus. Um, that's the key. And we looked at that again in uh, previous weeks. Then John says that he writes that we sin not. Now, of course, this is a big part of it. With the new life that's been given to us, that is of the Holy Spirit indwelling us, that new life does not sin. And so what John really is saying is that we would learn, as Paul puts it, to sow to the Spirit and not to the flesh, that we put our energies and efforts and time and our affections are toward the things of God, not toward the things of the world. And of course, we know the things of this world would leave us empty. They will never deliver on the promises that they seem to make. However, if we go to God, God will never leave us wanting. God will always, well, if, if we're wanting, it's only wanting more of him. But God will never disappoint. He will never leave us unsatisfied. Uh, but the things of this world, that's all they can ever do. John also writes and says that I've written unto you concerning them that seduce you. Now we'll see John address this as we go into this chapter this morning to chapter four. Um, this was on John's heart as well. That, you know, there's enough challenges within the flesh, within our own life. And yet outside, there are those that will pull us away from the Lord and from uh, good doctrine. Uh, and then the final one is that John says, I write that you may know that you have eternal life, that you may believe. And now this is so important because, again, this will come out in this chapter that John wants us to have that assurance so that we don't be in a position where we're fearful of God or fearful of judgment. We recognize that we have been saved because of Jesus, not because of what we've done, but because of what he's done. And that should give us such a confidence. And that should also be a source of joy for us to know that we have eternal life, not to be in any doubt whatsoever. And these are the reasons John writes. Now, there's another reason that we can add to this list. Although John doesn't specifically say it time and time again through this first letter of his, we see John really emphasizing that you learn what love really is. And so I would put that in a sense as a, a sixth reason that John gives uh, for writing to us because he wants us to understand love. Now, the world thinks it understands love and it portrays love in all sorts of different ways. Um, but John, in this chapter, is going to give us the Bible's definitive definition of what love really is. So we'll look at that as we go into the text. So let's jump in uh, to the text and we read in uh, chapter uh, four, verse one. Beloved. Now, again, John uses this term, just such a compassion for those he's writing to. Believe not every spirit, but try the spirits, whether they are of God, because many 
false prophets are gone out into the world. Now, this is what John tells us. First of all, he says, don't just believe everything here. Don't believe everyone. Don't believe anyone that comes to you claiming to, to be of God. You know, try, test, prove these things. Make sure it's true before you just follow after something. I don't think it's ever been a time where this is more important. When we've all got access to so much potential teaching through the Internet and other means that we need to be so discerning about what we listen to, what we allow into our hearts and our minds. Now, we need to be, again, mindful that Jesus, Peter, Paul, Jude, John, uh, there's others, but we could list those as the key ones, all warn of false prophets in the last days. Uh, And it's never been like it is today. You know, we need to also be aware that they might look like the real thing. They may look like they're really following God and serving God. You know, they might speak of Jesus as their savior. They might even do signs and wonders. And yet there are some caveats. There are some warnings that we are given very clearly. Let's look at some of the things that we're told. Now, first thing that we see there in that verse is that uh, because many false prophets are gone out. It's easy to miss that as you read the text. They've gone out into the world. That means they weren't in the world. They were in the church. That's where they've come from. It doesn't mean they were saved. It doesn't mean they were Christians. It means they may be masquerading as Christians or even maybe themselves thought themselves to be Christians, but they have gone out. That means that they were within. And that's a really important distinction to make because the majority of the problems the church has faced for the last 1900 years have all come from within the church. You know, persecution from outside only serves to make the church stronger. It's been said many times that the blood of the martyrs was the seed of the church. You know, that actually the persecution that Christians endured in the early centuries made the church strong. And actually, if you look at places in the world where Christians are persecuted, those that are followers tend to have a really strong faith. And we often see incredible miracles taking place because they have this complete trust and confidence despite the persecution. So... The real danger for us actually comes from within, from those that maybe seem very plausible, maybe say nice things. But if you remember that Paul warns about those that would come and would uh, tickle our ears effectively, they say the things that we want to hear. Well, we live in a generation and a world now where everything is uh, all about political correctness. Uh, I was reading uh, this morning, actually, um, uh, just an Oswald Chambers uh, portion, um, and and he was speaking about the way that Jesus uh, was not like we are in so many things. Jesus didn't uh, judge people. Uh, in the way that we tend to judge people. He said that Jesus was never suspicious of anybody, and yet he never trusted anybody as well because he knew what was in man. Um, But Oswald Chambers went on to make the comment um, to say that Jesus was never diplomatic. And I thought that was interesting. And he also then went on and said that Jesus was never humiliated. You know, Jesus never made statements about people that then turned out to be wrong. Um, but Jesus also was never diplomatic. He wasn't concerned about what people would think about him. And yet so often we're very concerned about what other people might think or what they might say. And so we often get fed things that we'll accept because we don't or we're not prepared to stand up and, and say, no, I don't accept that. That's not right. Because, of course, it's not correct and not politically correct to do that. So we need to be aware that we've got people that look like the real thing within the church 
and they can cause so many problems and so many go after these things. Let's just look at some of the things Jesus said. This is from Matthew 24, verse 3, we read, And he, uh, as he sat uh, upon the Mount of Olives, the disciples came unto him privately, saying, Tell us, when shall these things be? Now, Jesus had been talking about the temple being destroyed and so on. And they went on and said, uh, there's two questions, really. Tell us, when will these things be? That's the destruction of the temple. And what shall be the sign of thy coming and of the end of the world? And Jesus answered and said unto them, take heed that no man deceive you. Now, this is Jesus himself. This was on the Tuesday before he was crucified on the Thursday. This is just a couple of days, effectively. The last things, really, he's instructing and teaching the disciples. And he says, beware, be careful, because people will come and deceive you. And notice he says, for many shall come in my name. So we're going to see people coming in the name of Jesus. This isn't just about false religions. Sometimes they're easy to spot and very easy to reject. But the problem is those that come looking like they are coming in Jesus's name. And they say that they're coming in Jesus's name and saying, I am Christ. So people are going to come and claim to be the way to God or to provide a way to God. Of course, Jesus is the only way. He's the way, the truth, the life. No one can come to the Father but by him. And notice what Jesus says, that they shall deceive many. So we've got many that are going to be coming, and those many are going to deceive many. Jesus also goes on in verse 11 and reminds and repeats. It says, and many false prophets shall rise and shall deceive many. Just take note of how many times many is mentioned in these verses. Many false prophets. There's not going to be the odd few every now and again. There's going to be a multitude of false prophets springing up and trying to lead people astray. And many are going to be deceived by the things they say. Now, a little bit earlier in Matthew's Gospel, back in chapter 7, Jesus said this, Enter you in at the straight gate, for wide is the gate, and broad is the way that leads to destruction. And many there be which go in thereat, because straight is the gate, and narrow is the way which leadeth unto life, and few there be that find it. And then he says, Beware of false prophets which come to you in sheep's clothing. They look right. They look like they should be there. They look like they're part of the church. But inwardly, they are ravening wolves. They care about their own appetite. They care about satisfying themselves. They don't have regard for the sheep. If you remember, Paul at the beach of Miletus, on the beach of Miletus um, spoke to the Ephesian elders and warned them and said them, to them that, you know, for night, night and day, for tears, he'd warned them that there was going to come within the, from within the church those that would lead them astray. You know, Paul had a real compassion for the church for the saints you know and we'll go on and we'll see john make this point the love that we should have for each other and yet these ones that will come in they don't have a love for the church they don't really have a love for individuals um, again this false prophets would come to me sheep's clothing so we need to be so vigilant so aware we read on in verse 21 and jesus says not everyone that says unto me lord lord so notice people are going to refer to jesus as their lord but not all of them shall enter into the kingdom of heaven. But notice the criteria, but he that doeth the will of my father, which is in heaven, is being willing to be in subjection to God's will and to Jesus Christ is being willing to follow him and to trust him solely, not relying on other things. And we'll see this. John will emphasize this in a moment. Many notice again will say to me in that day, Lord, Lord, have we not prophesied? 
in thy name? Now, that should prick our ears up because we think if somebody prophesies in Jesus' name, isn't it a good thing? Well, back in Deuteronomy, Jesus, or the Lord had said there that he would allow false prophets to come into Israel and they would prophesy things and some of those things would come true. Why would he do it? To test them, to see whether their heart really was for him or not. And so we need to be aware that just because people prophesy things and those things seemingly come to pass. And he says, and in thy name have cast out devils, so that they seem to be doing the right things. And in thy name done many wonderful works. Of course, we live in a world that is so based upon um, centralizing everything and, and kind of experience based things. You know, so when we see miracles, wow, don't we get impressed by that? Well, you know, a miracle on its own doesn't necessarily mean anything. You know, it's interesting that Jesus could have done so many more miracles than he did. He didn't start his miracles until, you know, we got into ministry at the wedding at Cana in Galilee, the first one that we have recorded, you know. Uh, but we need to be very conscious that a miracle could be deception. So we need to check it against the word of God. That is the standard. That is what we base things by. Because we're going to have false prophets. They will speak of the Lord. They will cast out devils. They will do wonderful works. And then Jesus says, I will profess unto them, I never knew you. Depart from me, you that work iniquity. Jesus says, you have no relationship with me. So just because people know things, they're aware of things the Bible says, or they speak of things in a spiritual light, we need to be very, very cautious. These are the warnings that Jesus gives. Now, once again, that bit I mentioned a moment ago, this is what Paul says uh, to the Ephesian elders at the beach of Miletus. He says, take heed therefore unto yourselves and to all the flock over which the Holy Ghost has made you overseers. Notice his care for the church, to feed the church of God. What does Paul say they should do? To provide great services with wonderful atmospheres and nice comfy seating and great presentations and lovely lighting and nice things. You know, no, Paul doesn't say that's what we should do. He says to these leaders of the church that they should feed the church of God. That is the primary responsibility of a pastor, to feed the sheep, to feed the flock of God. And Paul says, which he, which Jesus has purchased with his own blood. He says, for I know this, that after my departing shall grievous wolves enter in among you, not sparing the flock. Now, later uh, elsewhere, Paul warns of being blown around by every wind of doctrine. Now, what's the safeguard against that? Well, it's knowing the word of God. That's why teaching is so important. That's why we need to learn and study and understand the word of God so that we are equipped and able to recognize deception and reject deception. So the primary focus that we have as a fellowship here, we put a lot of emphasis on teaching the word of God because this is throughout scripture, throughout the New Testament particularly, and we see much of it in the Old Testament, but in the New Testament particularly, the emphasis on teaching God's word, on understanding God's word, because of course, if we trust God's word, we will not go wrong. Notice Paul carries on and says, also of your own selves. Now, this is what we said. This is exactly what John says. That will come from within the church. Of your own selves shall men arise speaking perverse things to draw away disciples after them. We could spend the morning going on a tangent, looking at the typical things that have been said to draw people away. Uh, and some leaning, prominent, charismatic church leaders have made all sorts of declarations and drawn many after them. We need to just be very, very aware of the danger of these things, and particularly for young Christians. 
Uh, therefore watch and remember that by the space of three years I cease not to warn everyone night and day with tears you get the heart of Paul there now Jude also says beloved when I gave all diligence to write unto you of the common salvation it was needful for me to write unto you and exhort you that you should earnestly contend for the faith that means you should fight for it for the faith which was once delivered unto the saints it's not going to be added to there's no later revelations that give us things the, the, the disciples and Jesus missed and the apostles missed no no this was the faith that was once delivered unto the saints and then Jude says for there are certain men crept in unawares notice who were before of old ordained to this condemnation ungodly men turning the grace of our God into lasciviousness notice the grace that's the the free gift that God has given us they make it something that it wasn't supposed to be they make it a thing of works or of effort or you have to do this or you have to do that and notice, and denying the only Lord God and our Lord Jesus Christ. In other words, denying that he is sufficient, that he is all we need. So we need to be so, so aware of these things. Now, Peter, similar thing he says, but there were false prophets among the people, even as there shall be false teachers among you, who privily shall bring in damnable heresies, even denying the Lord that brought them, and bring upon themselves swift destruction. And many shall follow their pernicious ways, by reason of whom the way of truth shall be evil spoken of. In Matthew's Gospel, we find that there are seven kingdom parables in Matthew chapter 13 that unveil or reveal, if you like, the church. But they reveal two things. They reveal the true church, the bride of Christ, but also that there is an apostate church, which in Revelation is referred to as the whore, the, the, uh, this uh, entity that is judged uh, in Revelation 17 and 18. Now, in addition, we have the parable of the sower. OK, so this is again Matthew 13. This is the first of the parables. There's four soils that are mentioned. It shows the nature of a true believer. How do we know if somebody genuinely is a believer and is of God? Well, Jesus gives us some simple tests and it also reveals the nature and the character of a false convert. The important thing to note is that from that that portion, from the parable of the sower, there are genuine believers. But there are also many who may look like the real thing. But they are false converts that they've never really uh, let their roots sink down into the word of God. They've never been changed by the word of God. Now, there is also the parable of the tares. Now, this is the second of the parables that Jesus gives. And this unveils the enemies, Satan's attack from within the church. Now, I'm sure you're familiar. We haven't got the time this morning to go through in detail, but we get the scope that goes from the early church to the end of the age. So this is from that point in time that Jesus is speaking right up until the time that Jesus comes again. Now, the sower in the parables clearly is the son of man. The field is the world and the tares that are sown in this field are the children of the devil or those that are of uh, are not of God. They are following their own desires. Of course, they don't necessarily realize they're of the devil, but they're clearly not of God. Therefore, they are by default of the devil. The wheat, in contrast, are the children of the kingdom. And in that second parable, we find that we have the wheat and we have the tares and they grow together alongside each other and actually jesus says let them grow together don't go and uproot them because actually 
If you uproot them, they're both growing in the same soil, you might damage the wheat whilst you try and deal with the test. It's a really important lesson. It's not our job to go plucking out. We need to be wise. We need to understand. We need to be discerning. But it's not our job to go out. There are many so-called discernment ministries, and all they seem to do is go out trying to pluck up all the tares. Well, we're told very clearly that's not our job. Notice the wheat and the tares look identical until the harvest these these two uh crops if you like uh they grow together they grow alongside each other but they look identical it's very difficult to tell wheat and tares apart until the time of the harvest now at the time of the harvest the, so at the top of the stalk the wheat starts to droop because of the weight of it whereas the tares remain bolt upright it's just a beautiful picture of the pride and the arrogancy of the the tares of the false converts of those that are after their own ends we're told that the tares will be gathered into bundles to burn them now i think this is interesting i think it's a picture of the tribulation certainly what seems to be recorded for us in revelation 17 and 18 it means they're going to be grouped together and we should expect to see these tares these false converts these false prophets being grouped together following after each other in their own little cliques and clubs and whatever but we're also then told the wheat are gathered into his barn. And I think that's a beautiful picture of the rapture of the church. So we should expect to see before the rapture an abundance of these false prophets, these false teachers, bringing all their, their false heresies and making so many follow them and believe after them. But they will end up going into tribulation. But the wheat, by remaining faithful, will be gathered into Christ's barn. Again, a beautiful picture of the rapture. So verse two, let's uh, pick up some pace now. Hereby know ye the spirit of God. Every spirit that confesses that Jesus Christ is come in the flesh is of God. Now, just as in Matthew 13, the key is a person's relationship to the word of God. Now, sometimes it's hard to get our heads around, but never lose sight of the fact that Jesus is the word of God. So we have the written word of God. But the personification of the written word of God is Jesus Christ. Jesus and the word are one and the same. When we read scripture, it's like a jigsaw puzzle in a sense. As we piece it together, the picture that it paints is of Jesus. The word of God is Jesus Christ in written form to speak to our hearts and our minds. Again, it doesn't merely contain the word of God. There are many that believe or talk about the Bible as a great book and it's got lots of truth and it contains God's word. No, it doesn't contain God's word. It is God's word. It's really simple. And the false teachers and the false prophets that are out there will undermine God's words. There'll be that lie that was told way back in Genesis 3. Did God really say? They question God's word. They question the sufficiency of God's word, just as they question the sufficiency of Christ. The Gnostics, of course, amongst other things, believe that Jesus was a real person. There wasn't really so much doubt about that, that Jesus was a physical human being. There were some strange ideas that some of them suggested that he was uh, non-physical and just kind of floated around. Um, but the, the main thrust believed that Jesus was a real person. But the debate was regarding his divinity. Was he really God? And there were those that argued that the, the Christ spirit came upon Jesus, the man. Now, that's not the case. Jesus was always God from the moment of his birth and the moment he took on that human form. So the question really is, do you trust the word of God completely 
without doubt and without hesitation that's the real issue and this is where false prophets and false teachers will always come unstuck because they'll always try to either to add to god's word or take away from god's word or denying the sufficiency of question is god all sufficient remember in galatians paul warns the galatians that they are moving away from the gospel because they're trying to add works they're trying to add something to it uh, the jesus and gospel is always a false gospel verse 3 says and every spirit that confesseth not that jesus christ is come in the flesh is not of god and this is that spirit of antichrist whereof you have heard that it should come and even now already is in the world so in a sense every spirit that confesseth not that jesus is come in the flesh that he's complete that he is god manifest in the flesh again it's this denial of the completeness of the person of jesus that he's god and man in one in just the same way that people deny the sufficiency of god's word I want to read to you the, the paraphrase of the Living Bible. Uh, it says, uh, if not, the message is not from God, but from one who is against Christ, like the Antichrist. You have heard uh, about who is going to come and his attitude of enmity against Christ is already abroad in the world. I like that. I like the way it puts it. Actually, I'll just read on because it says uh, the next few verses. Dear young friends, you belong to God and have already won your fight with those who are against Christ. Because there is someone in your hearts who is stronger than any evil teacher in this wicked world. These men belong to this world, so, quite naturally, they are concerned about worldly affairs, and the world pays attention to them. But we are children of God, and that is why only those who have walked and talked with God will listen to us. Others won't. That is another way to know whether a message is really from God. For if it is, the world won't listen to it. Quite like that. Well, let's just pick that up in the, the King James. It says, verse four, ye are of God, little children, and have overcome them because we're told greater is he that is in you than he that is in the world. I remember this verse it was a song years ago. I remember with this verse is the kind of the key part of the song. He that is in you is greater than he that is in the world. You know, commit that verse to memory. It's 1 John 4 verse 4. 1 John 4 verse 4. He that is in you is greater than he that is in the world. Whatever is in the world, whatever influences, Jesus through his spirit in us is greater and it's just a very simple thing. But God's spirit is within you, of course, if you are a believer. And if so, the one that is dwelling in you is greater. What confidence that should give us in every situation we face, whether we're facing trials, temptations, physical challenges, emotional, mental, whatever it be. He that is in you is greater than he that is in the world. We're told that they are of the world and therefore they speak of the world and the world hears them. But he says, but we are of God. Notice the contrast. There's, there's two worlds that now exist. There's the world of the unsaved, the ungodly, those who make this world their home. Revelation effectively refers to it as earth dwellers, those that dwell on the earth. And there's those whose home is in heaven. Now we're a different world in a sense. And we are of God. He that knoweth God hears us. He that is not of God hears not us. Hereby know we the spirit of truth and the spirit of error. Once again, it's very clear to know which side we're on because those that hear us, those that want to know things of God, that are hungry for the things of God, well, it's a complete contrast to the world. It's another test that we can put in to see whether or not somebody's of God or not. I've often found it 
interesting speaking to uh, so-called believers people that profess to be followers of Jesus when it comes down to conversations about the Bible to me this is this is exactly what John is saying here in verse 6 if somebody is willing to sit down and discuss scripture then we're on pretty good ground but more often than not, you'll find that somebody, if they're not truly saved, they don't want to discuss scripture. They're quite happy with their opinions already. Thank you very much. They're not really bothered about what God's got to say. Whereas somebody who is born again of the spirit of God delights in sitting down and reading and studying scripture. You see, it's never about our opinions. Our opinions don't matter, you know, but it's the word of God that counts. You know, many Christians tend to base everything on, you know, second opinions, chapter three. You know, that that's not in the Bible. That's not a biblical book. It doesn't help to go after opinions. What matters is the word of God. And if people are not willing to come and to be humble before the word of God and discuss and discuss and to talk through, then we need to be very cautious uh, with those individuals. Again, don't be surprised if the world won't listen. And the ones that John is speaking about here are the ones who have had some church experience, some understanding of spiritual things, but they've gone out into the world. Back in First Corinthians, we read this, verse two of chapter, uh, verse fourteen of chapter two. Uh, but the natural man receives not the things of the Spirit of God, for they are foolishness unto him; neither can he know them, because they are spiritually discerned okay we're going to change the theme a little bit now uh as john just changes tack slightly as we go through um now i've entitled this bit lessons in love um there is uh of course that great chapter first corinthians 13 and it's considered the chapter on love in the new testament and quite rightly so and yet I would encourage you to consider 1 John 4 as a very serious contender to the chapter on love because of what John is about to tell us. He's going to define what love really is. In fact, 27 times in the remaining verses of this chapter, John will speak of love. He uses the same word. In fact, there's two slight de derivatives. There's agape and agapeo, um, but they're effectively the same word uh, in the Greek. Now, verse 10, John is going to give us the definition of love. We'll look at it in a second. And of course, it's diametrically opposed to the world's view. So John starts, verse 7, Beloved, let us love one another. It's a real simple statement. For love is of God. So notice, before John will define love, he'll tell us what the source of love. Love is of God. So every time we talk about love... Other than, you know, I love chocolate or I love this or I love that. You know, you know, I love it when it's sunny. Now, that's not the real love. That's just a, an expression we have to say that we like something. We're very fond of something. But when we speak about true love, notice that the source is of God. Love is of God. You won't find love outside of God. And notice this. And everyone that loveth is born of God and knoweth God. In other words, to truly understand love you have to be born of God and you have to have a relationship with God. And then we're told, he that loveth not, knoweth not God, for God is love. Okay, so if you don't know God, you're not capable of truly loving. You may use that word, but scripture is very, very clear. The source of love is God himself. Unless you are connected, unless you have that relationship with God, you won't understand love. This is why the world has so many challenges around relationships and so on, because its understanding of love is not rooted in scripture. Now, this is the first of the three times in this chapter that John will instruct us to love one another. Again, we need to be told 
we really do need to be reminded that we must love one another because it's not the natural thing. It's not the worldly way. Verse 9 says, In this was manifest the love of God toward us. Now, speaking of love, because that God sent his only begotten son into the world that we might live through him. So we're getting to that definition now. And the next verse will give us it. But it's ramping up to that. This is made clear. Manifest just means to make something clear, to make it visible in a sense. In this was made clear the love of God toward us. So we get an indication of God's love because God sent his only begotten son into the world. That we're getting to the, to the real crux of this is what love is all about and that we might live through him. Of course, John 3.16, you're very familiar, is really another uh, statement where John says the same thing as he says here in 1 John 4 verse 8. Romans uh, 5, 6 uh, through 8 tells us this, for when we were yet without strength in due time, Christ died for the ungodly, for scarcely for a righteous man will one die, yet poor adventure for a good man, some would even dare to die. But God commendeth or demonstrates or shows his love toward us in that while we were yet sinners, Christ died for us. Starting to get the picture. Galatians 4 verse 4 and 5. But when the fullness of the time was come, God sent forth his son made of a woman, made under the law to redeem them that were under the law that we might receive the adoption of sons. We've been invited in because of this love. And it was at that right moment in history that God sent Jesus into the world to redeem, to purchase, to win back those who were otherwise under the judgment and the condemnation of the law to rescue us, that we would then be adopted into his family, not because of anything we had done, because of his love. Verse 10. So this is our definition now. Herein is love. This is what John says. Not that we loved God, okay, so it's not our love that, that is the definition of love, but that he loved us, and we're told again, and sent his son to be the propitiation for our sins. That means payment in full, the complete payment. Beloved, if God so loved us, we ought also to love one another. Just adds that on at the end there. But this really is what love is all about. It's selfless giving, that unconditional love. You see, we say, I love you. And what we generally mean by that is, I love how you make me feel, or I love what you do for me. You know, somebody does something kind and we respond, oh, I love you. You know, I thank you for that. You know, and there's, there's this gratitude and we mistake that for love. But biblically, what we're being told here, true love says, I love what I can do for you. I love how I can bless you. You see, love is about what we give, not about what we receive. Love is an action. There's a great song years ago by a Christian band called DC Talk called Love is a Verb. Uh, it's a doing word. It's an action. Uh, consider Abraham. I read this yesterday morning, just reading through the, the Bible in the year. Um, speaking about Abraham and the Oaks of Mamre. Uh, and the visitors arrive. You remember God, those two angels arrive and Abraham sees them and greets them and says, oh, come and sit down and let me make you a meal. And he makes them a meal. Now, this was part of the culture, but it helps to just get an indication of the love element here. You know, I, may, I, I can freely confess to you that when it comes to food, you know, I, I, the, the eating part to me is the best bit. You know, and, you know, if, if somebody's preparing food, I really look forward to that eating bit. Um, but Abraham goes off, gets the meal prepared, gives it to his visitors 
and then waits and lets them eat it. He doesn't jump in himself. He doesn't eat himself. He's not looking to satisfy himself. His pleasure, his joy is in seeing them receive. Now, I think most parents can understand this and probably all of us to some degree have got some sort of capacity. You know, when we get to times like Christmas and so on, it's lovely to receive gifts. But I can tell you, and I'm sure most parents can echo this, that one of the greatest joys is when you give your child a gift and you see their eyes light up and you see them so uh, excited about what they've received. And there is something about that giving that outweighs anything that you could receive in return. Doesn't matter what gifts you get, you might get all the, the gifts you wanted or hoping to receive. But the most important thing is giving. And, you know, we, we, we had it at Christmas time. Uh, once again, I, I'm, I'm a big old softie really. And I often end up, you know, crying and we did it this year again. Uh, one of the, the, the girls got a special present and, uh, every, for their 10th birthday, we've typically given uh, something a little bit uh, special. Uh, Marla had it a few years ago. This year is a meter's turn. Um, and, and I was three years ago with Marla, I was in floods of tears and show she. It was just such a lovely moment this year with a meter. But there is something so wonderful about giving. And that's really what love is all about. But let's build on this because. The pleasure, as I say, is in giving and not in receiving. Now, John goes on and says, Beloved, if God so loved us, we ought to love one another. Now, has anybody got a problem with that? Think about what God's saying. God loved us unconditionally. He's given us his son. He's brought us into his family. We've been adopted. The joy in the father's heart in doing what he did. Now, of course, there was that pain of seeing Jesus suffer. But the reason God did that, the reason God allowed it, and the reason that Jesus endured it was because of the joy that was set before him. This is what scripture tells us. The love, the joy that God had in giving this gift to us. It was almost like, you know, you can't wait for your child to unwrap that present. Well, God was that way with us. And God says, because of that, you should have that kind of love for one another, wanting to bless, wanting to give them things. See, do you want God's love? Well, you need you you need it more than you know you do. Well, then you must love others. This is part of the equation. You see, don't worry, by the way, because it doesn't have to come from you. And what I mean by that, the analogy is often used, and I'm sure you've heard it before, the situation between the Sea of Galilee and the Dead Sea. Okay, the Sea of Galilee, those who have been to Israel will know, is teeming with life. Uh, it's a beautiful, lovely lake, big lake really, but this, this is referred to as the sea. The River Jordan flows into it and then the River Jordan flows out of it. And all around it is beautiful, uh, so much vegetation and colour and it's just a wonderful place. But then that River Jordan goes all the way on down to the Dead Sea, but it doesn't flow out of the Dead Sea. And the Dead Sea is dead. There's nothing living there. It's just so full of salt and minerals and everything else. You know, this is the whole basis here, that we are to let flow out of us what God has put in. If we keep it all to ourselves and we don't give that love out, we become like the Dead Sea. It's a great little picture uh, that we have. Now, 
It comes from the Spirit of God within us. We're told that God's love has been shed abroad in our hearts by the Holy Spirit. Paul tells us that in Romans. And this is how also we know we're saved because we are able to love each other in a way that not the natural man, the people in this world, don't get. They don't understand. Because God loves the ungodly and enables us to do just the same. Now, We're told, therefore, no man has seen God at any time. If we love one another, God dwelleth in us. In other words, if God is in us, we're naturally going to overflow with that love to each other. And his love is perfected in us. God loves it when he sees us giving because that's what he wants us to become. These love, uh, uh, what's the word I'm looking for? We just continually give out this love. Hereby we know that we dwell in him. This is one of the ways that we know that we are in him and he in us because he's given us of his spirit. So once again, it's his spirit in us that enables us to love each other. You know, if you're not walking in the spirit, you're going to find it very difficult to love other people and particularly other believers. If you're walking in the spirit, it's a very natural thing. Now, before we go on, I just want to quickly uh, not go off on a tangent because it's part of this verse. But verse 12 says, no man has seen God at any time. Now, is that correct? Um, it's actually also uh, repeated in John 1, John's Gospel, chapter 1, verse 18. John says there, no man has seen God at any time. The only begotten son, which is in the bosom of the father, he had declared him. But is that correct? Is there not a contradiction? Because in Genesis 18, the Oaks of Mamre was speaking of a short while ago, Abraham had a face-to-face conversation with God. So has he not seen God? In Genesis, Jacob not only sees God face to face, he wrestles with him all night. In Exodus chapter 24, verses 9 through 11, Moses and the elders of Israel go up to the mount. They see God. They eat and drink in his presence. Moses, we're told, uh, actually got to see God face to face, to talk to God face to face. So how do we understand these things? Well, also Joshua, Gideon, Samson's parents and others see God and their lives are spared. What's the answer? Well, it's quite simply this. In John chapter 4, verse 24, we're told there that God is a spirit and they that worship him must worship him in spirit and in truth. Now, as a spirit being, God does not have a physical body. Physical objects, of course, are part of this order of things. In the beginning, that's time. God created the heavens, that's space and the earth. That's matter. That's what physical things are made up of. Before this, there was no time, there was no space, and there was no matter. All three came into existence when God began his work of creation, and yet God existed outside of all of those things. God is not physical, he's a spirit, as John tells us. So it's therefore impossible for us, in this present order of things, to see God who inhabits eternity. Now, the likes of Abraham and Jacob and Moses and Those others in scripture that are spoken of as seeing God, they see a physical representation, a manifestation of the person of God, but they've never truly seen God as he is. So there's going to come a time, though, that we will get to see him. In 1 John 3, 2, we looked at this last week. Beloved, now we are the sons of God, and it does not yet appear what we shall be, but we know that when he shall appear, we shall be like him, for we shall see him as he is. We're going to get to see God as he really is, but nobody yet has done that. 
Apart from, of course, Jesus, who reveals him to us. Uh, 1 Corinthians 13, 12 says that for now we see through a glass darkly. Uh, we've got a pale, a poor reflection, but then face to face. Now I know in part, but then I shall know even as I am known. So no man has seen God as he truly is. I just want to read this to you. For now, God has chosen to reveal himself through physical manifestations, as noted in the scriptures we just mentioned. Jesus Christ is the ultimate and final physical manifestation of God. It's important to note that the Father, the Son and the Spirit all existed before the beginning and before matter. The Son did not come into being at the point of conception with Mary. The Son has always existed and has always enjoyed a relationship with the Father and the Spirit. And for God's purposes, the Son became a man, became flesh, and dwelt among us to declare the Father to us, if you like, to be a lamp to our feet and a light to our paths. Remember, thy word is a lamp. Jesus is the word and ultimately to show us God. So this is what Jesus does. He shows us God, but no one has truly seen God as he really is for now. I hope that just clears that up. Let's make a run to the end of the chapter. Verse 14. And we have seen and do testify that the father sent the son to be the savior of the world. Whosoever shall confess that Jesus is the son of God, God dwelleth in him and he in God. And we have known and believed the love that God has to us. God is love, and he that dwelleth in love dwelleth in God, and God in him. You see, our love for others is evidence also of our salvation. You know, and we can love because we have received his love. Herein is our love made perfect, that we have boldness in the day of judgment, because as he is, so are we in this world. There is no fear in love, but perfect love casts out fear, because fear has torment. He that feareth is not made perfect in love. What this verse is saying is that we shouldn't have fear, because when you realize just how much God loves you, you won't fear the coming judgment, because we have already been delivered from wrath because of the love that he's demonstrated to us. You know, because we know he loves us, again, demonstrated through the giving of his son, we don't have to fear his wrath and then what a great standalone verse 1 john four nineteen is we love him because he first loved us you know the whole work of redemption was initiated by god before the foundation of the world it was provided for by god by making death the punishment for sin and made possible by god by sending his son to die in our place, and of course accomplished by God, Jesus rising from the dead, and thus we become part of his family. We are adopted, we become joint heirs with Christ. Again, the whole work of redemption was initiated by God, provided for by God, made possible by God, and accomplished by God. All we have to do is receive it by faith. So the last couple of verses, if a man say, I love God and hates his brother, he's lying. You know, you can't say, I love God, and then have hatred in your heart towards a brother in Christ. It doesn't work, because if you have that love, if the Spirit is working in your life, you will have love for your brothers in Christ. For he that loveth not his brother whom he has seen, how can he love God whom he's not seen? And then John concludes the chapter, and this commandment, notice commandment we have from him, 
that he who loves God loves his brother also. You know, we're told that the commandments of God are not grievous. They're not something we cannot do. It's not like the law, which sets a standard we can't attain. Because we've already mentioned that verse from Romans, that the love of God is shed abroad in our hearts by the Holy Spirit whom he's given. And so that is how we can love each other. I hope that encourages you. I hope that stirs you. I hope that just gets our focus on the love that we should have. And I praise God that what he's doing in our midst in this fellowship and what he's continued to do through the years through this fellowship is just work in our hearts that we have this love for each other and pray that God allows that just to flourish even more, that nothing would come and take away or rob us of that love that we have for each other and that we be careful and discerning regarding those false teachers that are all over the internet all over youtube and all sorts of other places beware be very vigilant and don't let anything come and damage this wonderful love that god has placed in our hearts that we should let overflow to each other let's bow our hearts oh father we just thank you lord now for this opportunity uh, that we can share these things together we can look and review what you have recorded in your word for our learning that we through the patience and the comfort of scriptures, can have just this incredible hope. Oh Lord, we just pray now that you stir our hearts by these things and give us a greater and deeper love for each other. And Lord, a greater and deeper love for you. We thank you for your love for us. We thank you for adopting us. Lord, give us that joy that we should have, that John writes about that says we should know. And Lord, this is all part of that picture of how we can have that complete life serving you walking with you in step with your spirit lord we just thank you for these things now in jesus name amen